And as you do so, I'm going to pray. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that as you, just as you stir us up in fellowship, that you'd uh, settle us back into our seats, that you would give us uh, a hunger, a desire for more. Lord, we, we want to bust outside of the compartments of Sunday morning Christianity. We do not want to be middle-class Christians. We want to have the capacity of belief that you might have something to say to us outside of a worship service. That maybe on a Wednesday, over a cup of coffee with a sister or a brother, that you might break in and offer deliverance, freedom, peace, or joy. A word of revelation that would be propelling. A prophetic utterance that would give us direction and momentum for the next season or the remainder of our lives. Lord, how sad are we when we believe that everything you have to give us is going to be packed inside of an hour or two on a Sunday morning. And so when we take this moment for fellowship, Lord, we do it as a, like we're at a gym. We do this to work out, to, to exercise our spirits that we might become conditioned, that we might long for, that we might establish a great place of desire to have fellowship be in our lives, that we might connect with other people who know you and love you and spur us on into a deeper walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I told James that I would mention that the deadline for his super fantastic, fabulous gumbo, either which can be bought either in spicy or non-spicy mix. And the spicy is pretty spicy. Like good spicy. I like it. And the not spicy is not spicy. It's not, you, you ever have that when people go, here's the not spicy, but they, like Brian, if Brian Wages says, here, I'll give you some of my not spicy, it's still too hot for you. <laughs> because he, do, you know, he doesn't have any taste buds, so everything he does is like on fire. But James, this is literally, it's a, it's a good heat and no heat, right? And so, but the deadline to get that, signed up for that is May 19th. So that's like a month, a little three weeks something like that, to, to get signed up. And then when will you have it back? Somebody said December. <laughs> May 26th. May 26th, so like the next week? Yeah. All right, that's what I'm talking about. You're not going to deliver it? <laughs> It'll be here, deliver it here. <laughs> Man, you're good, you're good. If that's a chance to get with you and talk about the Lord, I'll do it. But some of you that are far from God need to buy gumbo. You can get in your house. Hey, uh, turning your Bibles to, I'm going to be in two places today. Uh, we're going to be in Judges, just one verse in the book of Judges, the very last verse in the book of Judges. 
And then I'm going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So Judges 21, 25 and 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Just two verses. And I will tell you at the beginning that this is a, uh, it's a bad news, good news message. First, I'm going to give you, you know, kind of the bad news. And then, and they're going to bust into the good news. I, uh, to be completely honest with you, well, I hate when people say that because it, su- it suggests you haven't been completely honest up to that point. Um, <laughs> to be completely, to disclose my heart fully to you, um, this message really does flow out of my uh, devotional life. <clears throat> this week, I've been reading through the book of Judges. And uh, just a part of it's gotten hold of my heart in a way that it, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, I pass, I read the book of Judges at least once a year as I'm going through the Bible. Uh, and it's such a hard book to read. For me, it's such a very difficult book to read. I believe, I feel like in that book that um, redemptive history is almost put on pause. You know, it's, it's like if, if you've ever been in the bush of Africa or in, you know, the jungles of Central or South America during rainy season, and, you're, and you go, hey, we only have to go 20 miles. How long is it going to take? And they go, I don't know. It might take four hours. It might take a day. You're like, man, that's not that far. And you're going along at, you know, 30 miles an hour, and you're like, it can't take that long. And all of a sudden, you, your vehicle has to get in the mud. And then you, you're, you're moving, but you're moving so slowly that, like, going 50 feet in mud takes, like, three hours. So it almost feels like you're not moving. That's what the book of Judges feels like to me. It's, I know it's moving toward, you know, uh, the book of Ruth, but I almost feel like it comes to a standstill. It's such a dark and difficult book in terms of um, the, the history of Israel. And so, I, I, the, you know, that la- and that last verse kind of personifies all that's wrong. And then the good news uh, is in 2 Corinthians 4. And so um, let's, just, let's just take a look at it on the screen, and then I'll pray, and we'll go in. So, yeah, that becomes the question of this message is king or no king. And, and those verses are so I, – I don't the, – the, the full disclosure part is I don't really know whether there's a connection between these two verses. I made it in my own heart. Uh, and so – uh, you'll, you'll have to kind of see with me whether you feel like these are completely disconnected verses that Jeff has just tied together for the purposes of a message or whether there really is something deep that the Lord wants to speak to you. I trust the fact that deep reaches out to deep. I don't know that I can make the perfect connection, but I, I, I felt the weight of it this week as I was praying. So look at, look at Judges 21, 25. The last, absolute last verse of, of the book of Judges says this. In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's actually a repeated refrain that occurs several times. Uh, there, the, the, the book of Judges is, is all about pattern and repetition and stories that they, they kind of spin into deeper and darker places. If you read the book uh, and you read it with kind of an eye of like, not just to kind of get through it. That's sometimes how I read it, like just get through it. But if you read it with like a what's going on here, you really do have the sense that you're going deeper and deeper into, into just this immoral, dark, almost, um, well, it's horrific, some of the things that are going on. Even the good guys are not so good. And even I think maybe the best example of all in, in, uh, in the book is uh, at the end of his life is, is, is caught up in idolatry. And so... Um, 
it, it's, and for me, the bad news, good news that we're going to get at is, <clears throat> I don't know, I think that verse right there, I don't know, this is where I might show my age and maybe I'll get in trouble, but I think that that is a perfect, that, that should be the banner for postmodernism. Postmodern thought should just have that as its banner. Everyone just do what's right in your own eyes. You just figure it out for yourself. You know, your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. Or there is no real truth. It's just every man for himself. And um, really the way it works, the, the word that's used, the Hebrew word that's used there for right is, uh, there's a lot, there's a number of Hebrew words that are used for right. The one that's used here is a very peculiar word in that it means Basically, it means like a straight path or straight line. So, so what it essentially is suggesting is that everyone, everyone made their own way. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're without a king. Everyone has the, the, the propensity to say, I'm the king. I'm the king of my own castle. This is a very, I mean, this, the weight of this is such, it feel, doesn't it feel very American. I'm the king of my own castle. I pull my car into my garage, put my garage door down, pull up the bridge to the moat, and I get to determine for myself what's right in my own eyes. Um, well, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us to, to feel uh, both the weight and, and the, the, the glory uh, that, we'll, that we see in your word, and pray that you would start with me and that you would unpack this uh, this, this word for us as we long for you, Jesus. We believe that you are willing to pour yourself into us. It, does, it just defies my understanding, but we believe that that's the truth, and so we, we ask for you to come and to minister to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I was studying for ministry uh, and being deeply influenced by, by a number of, um, my, most of my influencers aren't living people. They're people who have gone before us, and I happen to think that, that a lot of classic, uh, older books that were written that were shorter oftentimes were really sound theology and good theology. And, and, uh, and a lot of those old theologians who were writing were writing essentially a message that could best be described as totalitarian. And I'm studying that in a time where postmodernity is just is starting to explode into the into the into the into the landscape. So that you can can you see the contrast that there is this idea of moral relativism and you know everybody gets to choose what's right in their own eyes versus this idea of a of a of a totalitarian king named Jesus who has the right to rule and reign over every aspect and decision of our lives. Um, one of the guys who is, uh, I'm proud to say, is a, a fellow alum of the seminary I went to named E. Stanley Jones. He writes a lot about this. He, he, says, he suggested that life any other way than the totalitarian way of Jesus is muddled, maddening, and, imp and impossible. He, he says throughout the centuries we've lost the kingdom as being clearly defined and workable, a workable system for order and influence. We've reduced the kingdom by putting it into these narrow molds of like it's a refuge now or a present security or a future hope. And he says we do anything but, but, but cling to or buy into the kingdom that Jesus preached, which is this, God's total answer to man's total need. 
God's got a complete and total answer for, for what our total need is, which is his way, not ours. And so the kingdom of God is anywhere Jesus is, and wherever he is, he rules and reigns. And, and, and so you have that message juxtaposed with the message of Judges 21-25, which disappeared from the screen, but says, you know, there, for Israel at this time, there's no king. The fact of the matter is, is that Gideon in this book of Judges tries to tell them the truth, which is they said, Gideon, why don't you be our ruler? You know, you're, you're doing a really good job of it, a bang-up job. Why don't you be our ruler? And he says, you have a ruler. You know, the Lord is the, the ruler of, of, of Israel, not, not me. But they refuse to believe it. Judges is a kind of bad title for it in the sense that we, we understand judges are guys that wear or people who wear black robes and sit it in courtrooms. That's not really, you think more like tribal chiefs or mob bosses. It's kind of the way it works. You know, the people who are over, you know, kind of uh, uh, the, the, the collective uh, order of the, of the, of the, of the country, uh, but in like tribal ways more than like a, a, an organized government way. And so the bad news is that in those days there was no king. There, was, there really wasn't, a, and, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Every man would, was his own master as though there was no king, although Gideon says there is. And if you look at Israel's history, you'll remember that God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to do all this stuff through you. Um, I've chosen you, and then I'm going to bless the nations through you, not because you're special, not because you're better than all other people, but because you're so common and because if I can show the world my glory through you, then the nations will see that I can be poured out in anyone. And, he, and so from Abraham, you have this long journey from Abraham to the Davidic, to, to David being brought on as a, you know, as a real pure symbol of this messianic hope coming in Jesus. But it takes a long time to get there. And so, you know, the... the, the, the the Jewish people, the covenant people, have to pass through slavery in Egypt, 400-plus years of slavery in Egypt where it gets really, really bad. And then God sends a deliverer in the form of Moses who has this kind of Popeye moment of saying, I can't take it anymore, and God says, neither can I. And the people are delivered, but it's just as soon as they get into the wilderness, they essentially say, thank you, God, so much for delivering us from these horrible Egyptians. Can we go back? It's kind of the nature of man to say, you know, thanks for nothing. What have you done for me lately? I'm going to choose my own way. My way is I'd like to go back where at least I have meat. But God gets them through the wilderness, takes a little longer than expected because of disobedience and a bunch of other complications. They get across the Jordan into this, into this conquest uh, led by Joshua, and then Joshua dies. They follow God when Joshua's alive, but the very beginning of the book of Judges tells us that the very next generation after Joshua has forgotten God. And gone their own way. Basically what happened is they didn't follow God's plan of, of, of taking the land. They didn't do it in its entirety. It let, they left things undone. They forgot who God was. And within one generation, it's descended down to, 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 to kind of a, a, a pervasive evil. You know, if you read the book. And you have to kind of, as I said, see redemptive history on hold. Uh, or barely moving forward, sometimes one step forward, two steps back. The heroes are kind of complicated heroes, and, and, and as soon as a judge dies, then everything just descends into chaos, and then finally all of Israel 
is lost in this just horrible, horrible uh, place at the end of the book. And then we're longing for someone to come. And finally, uh, the, 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 the time of kings comes and, and we have Saul. And then finally we get to David. So that's, you know, the, the bottom line in, in, in going through that history is just to say this sentence. Human nature is to do what's right in our own eyes. It's just the nature of man. If left to our own, we, we do what's right in our own eyes. And we usually result to one of two things. We result to idol worship or self-reliance. That's kind of the places that we go to. You know, idol worship being constructing our own gods. Like, yeah, I'm going to construct a system around me um, of the way I think it should work. And I believe that there's something greater than me. So I'll construct a god in my own image so that I'll be able to, to, to stomach that. And a, 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 a person wrote a, well, it doesn't matter who the person is, but they, they wrote something called, uh, they described this concept of the gods that we tend to construct for ourselves as being the mush god. Uh, and this is what he says. The mush god has been known to appear to millionaires on golf courses or to politicians at ribbon-cutting services and to clergymen speaking the invocation on national television at either the Democratic or Republican convention. The mush god has no real theology to speak of, being a cream of wheat divinity. The mush god has no particular credo, no tenets of faith, nothing that would make it difficult for believer and non-believer alike to lower one's head when the temporary chairman tells us that reverend so-and-so or rabbi such-and-such or father or mufti or so-and-so will lead us in perfervidly innocuous prayer. For this God of public occasions is not a jealous God. You can even invoke him to start a hooker's convention. And he, she, or it won't be offended. God of the Rotary, God of the Optimist Club, protector of the buddy system, the mush God is the Lord of secular ritual of the necessary but hypocritical forms and formalities that hush the divisive and the derisive. The mush God is a serviceable God whose laws are are chiseled on tablets but written on sand, amenable to amendment, qualification, and erasure. This is a God that will compromise with you, will make allowances for you, and will declare all wars holy and all pieces sacrosanct. The mush God. These are the kind of gods we tend to construct for ourselves, the ones who seem to be malleable and, and work within the framework of our lives, no matter how we you know, go or what we believe. So then, if we choose our own way, our God goes with us. Or we... We go the complete opposite direction towards self-reliance where we don't construct gods in our own image. Instead, we just make ourselves the king and the ruler and the God. And that to me, I see that in Philippians 2 where it says Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Why didn't Jesus consider equality with God something to grab for? Because he is equal, (laughs) With God. You, don't have to grab, you don't have to grab for what you are. It is his nature. But we know from Scripture that, 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 that the enemy, Satan himself, considers equality with God something to be grasped and as a result is cast out of you know, heaven. We know that Adam and Eve literally grasp for equality with God. We know that the blight of humanity is that we desire this kind of often this self-reliance that we want to go our own way, that we want to make our own. And, and, and we, it's not until we come to the end of that, which is what I'm going to get to the good news in a little bit, You'll see what it's like. But that's one, of the, that, that's one of the options. We either go to the mush god or we go to this, this place of self-reliance. And the bottom line is this. A world without Jesus or without a king, a king with, you know, is a world without rules, restrictions, and boundaries. The, the, the sad thing as I think about it is Israel today has a king, and she does not know him. 
And when I go to places like Tel Aviv, it looks a lot like Judges 21. And I would say Israel has a king who she does not know, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Um, so, but I'll tell you, I think that's what it looks like when people uh, do what's right in their own eyes. It, when, when, when we, this is Jeff's opinion, when we do what's right in our own eyes, we quite often get it very, very wrong. Um, because the mentality and the morality of, of, of most of us uh, is such that we can't just let people live as they want. Uh, I, we, we, we revert to, like, the purge, you know? Um, so it's important for us, you know, throughout history that we submit our lives to, to something higher, to someone higher. I was reading an illustration this week about a family, you know, thinking about the importance of families with foundations, about a family in a small Missouri town who uh, it was a preacher who had two sons. And these two sons were playing with a little dog that they found. It was a black dog with a white tail. And, and they wanted to keep the dog. They loved the dog. And, um, and the father, you know, the preaching, preacher father said, that's fine. It's a cute dog. You can keep her. But then they heard about a new family who moved in and how they'd lost their dog, which was a black dog with a white tail. And so the preacher dad didn't want to have to give up the dog because his boys loved the dog so much. So what did he do? He painted the white tail black. And when the new neighbors asked whether, hey, that looks a lot like the dog we lost, he lied and said, no, of course it's not your dog. The tail's the wrong color. And what could they say? You know, um, they kind of had the trump card. And do you know those two boys' names? Frank and Jesse James. Uh, Two of the most notorious criminals, you know, of all time. Um, were raised by a preacher father who, who's, who's the foundations. I mean, it's to me, was a glaring illustration of, you know, you, it's, the, it's the little lies. You know, it's the leaven in the loaf. It's the foxes in the vineyard. You know, God's never, ever worked in a world, in this world, without authority structures. He's never, you know, from the garden on throughout human history, God has established authority, family uh, you know, has been established with, 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 with a, you know, a man-made head of a, his home and God appoints leaders in nations and he sets boundaries for those nations and he establishes a covenant with Israel and appoints leaders and prophets very imperfectly to lead her. And, and he creates the, you know, the, the church on the day of Pentecost that breathes the Holy Spirit into this ragtag group of Jewish followers of Jesus and appoints apostles and overseers to shepherd the flock, and whether it's Noah, Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, Solomon, Peter, James, Paul, you see throughout the history of God's activity that he's appointed, you know, and he's established this leadership structure, and he works through very imperfect people on this earth to accomplish his purposes. And when we start, and this is where I feel like I become the old grandpa shaking his finger uh, in a way, when we start to do whatever we believe is right in our own eyes, and we voice our opinions apart from leadership structure in places where God has, is working, we tend to go against, you know, the, the, God's order. Say law. Reflect on that. Let me, let me break into the, 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 the good news with no transition, with no, with no neat story to tie it together. I'm trusting the Lord here. Uh, because I believe 
there is an alternative. There is a way in which we see life work, but it, it, it makes no sense. It's, it's so completely counterintuitive. It doesn't have... It, I can't read this and go, yeah, that's it. That, that's the way that anybody would do it. It's from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Where this is what Paul says. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, in earthen vessels, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, what I see in this verse is I see uh, Paul describing a reality in which a nation without a king does whatever it sees as right in its own eyes compared to a person who has the king embedded within them and has power that surpasses the power of a nation without a king. And, and, and it's mind-blowing to me for a variety of reasons. I'll tell you, this is what I want. This is what I want for me. This is what I want for you. The, the, the phrase there that we translate surpassing power is, uh, are two Greek words that are, that are beautiful words. Uh, the, 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 the word surpassing there is hyperbola or bole, but we pronounce it hyperbole. What is hyperbole? It means exaggeration. It means, the the Greek word means literally throwing beyond. So it means like if I wanted to say to you, here, catch, I'd throw it as far as I could. So you see, throwing, that'd be fine, but if I throw it as far as I could, that's hyperbole, right? That's, That's surpassing what you need. And it's not saying it in a way like I'm just trying to be extra, it, mean, it means I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, dem- I, this word means something that is so far beyond what's necessary or what just the common average point would be. And he's saying that the power that God places in us is so far beyond what's needed to live just a good life that it's ridiculous how far beyond he, you know, he, 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 gives, he grants us this thing. And the power, the word that is for power is the word dunamis, which we get the word dynamite from. And so, so basically, what, what, what Paul is saying here is that we have within these, the jars of clay here, us, and he's saying we have within us, these human bodies, hyperbolic dynamite. I want that. <laughs> I, want, I want hyperbolic dynamite. I want to be able to, to, to demonstrate the life of Jesus in such a way. And, and this dunamis, it means strength or power, ability, it's inherent it, it's, it's a power that resides within. It's like a virtue. It's a power for performing miracles. It's, it's moral power. It's excellence of soul. It's power to influence people around you. It's power uh, in resources that arise from amassing numbers. It's, it's power that rests on armies and forces and hosts. This is a, this is a pretty significant thing that's being, being promised here or being pledged here or being uh, noted here. But here's where it gets me. This is why I, I can't get it. Because there is a contrast that's being shown here that is the most drastic kind of contrast you could ever imagine, right? It is stark. It is bewildering. The incongruity that's here, the, the, the disproportionate nature of this, it's treasure in earthen vessels. It doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't make sense, does it? Does this make sense to you that God would do this? I mean, think about it. Uh, I just read a, 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 or saw a, a video about the most 
valuable uh, art- article that had ever been valued on, uh, what's that show called, Gary? Antiques Roadshow. It was a painting, a Mexican artist painted as a young man, became very famous, and this, this painting had thought to have been lost in 1930. Nobody knew where it went. It went cold. They couldn't find it. It's the only one they couldn't find. The original of this painting, which had been perfectly restored, existed in this couple's home in Texas, and they had it in a room behind a door. Doesn't seem fitting. The, 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 kid, that, the, the kid, the man that owns it now, who'd, who'd gotten it from his parents, had it, and he, they said uh, he didn't, he, it didn't cost him anything. He just thought, well, maybe it's worth something. And at the time of its valuation, it was worth about $1.2 million. And now it's worth maybe double that. And so a, a $2.5 million painting being stored behind a door in a, in a, in a guest bedroom doesn't seem very fitting, does it? To, to put treasure in earthen vessels, it's like putting a, you know, that beautiful picture in a junk frame or a priceless jewel in a, in a, in a, in a cardboard box or some national treasure that we all, instead of it being you know, perfectly displayed in the Smithsonian, it's, some, it's in some dingy, dusty museum case in you know, Jacksonville. It would clearly be all wrong. And, and yet this, according to Paul, is precisely what God has done. That there is this startling contrast. On, on the one side, there's the magnificence of divine grace. And on the other side, there's me. The worthlessness of the human heart. You know, into which God has poured and deposited that grace. It's, it's so, I mean... You, you get what I mean by hyperbolic power, right? Hy- hyperbolic dynamite. If you, if you take dynamite and you make it extra dynamite, and, and for God to take that power and entrust it to such poor and pathetic broken instruments, you know, like me and like all y'all, um, to, to, to take such an infallible truth and commit it to very fallible people, to take such an amazing gospel and commit it to such an ordinary and broken institution that we call the church, to take such power and put it into people who are so prone to just choose their own way. It's a great risk that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's, it's, it's absolutely incongruent. In fact, it's all wrong. That's my evaluation. It's all wrong for God to do this. Yet it is exactly God's method, and somehow it has to be right because it's what he does. And so somehow, somewhere, there's got to be a reason and a purpose for that mind-blowing discrepancy. And some people, what they do with this is they take it and they become skeptical and cynical. And what they'll say is, obviously, this hyperbolic dynamite thing doesn't exist because if it did, we'd see it more clearly. And God certainly wouldn't deposit it in a person like Jeff Henderson. And so they become cynical, and they go, you know, it, it's, it's just, this is indication of, it, it doesn't exist. Other people, what they try to do is narrow the gap, and they go, well, let us, you know, God does have this all-surpassing power, this, this, this treasure that is worth everything. So let's build something worthy of the treasure, and so let's rebuild Notre Dame. You know, let's raise a billion dollars in a day to rebuild a building because it's got to be worthy of this treasure, this this all-surpassing power that's in God. And we think if we can just make the church a little better, then it'll be worthy of it. But, but that's not how you resolve the paradox. 
we realize there's actually a divine purpose in the uh, disparity between the treasure and the vessel. The, 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 the fact that they're so different is actually intended by God. The treasure has been put into a jar of clay, not by mistake, but because nothing, and not because nothing better was available. It's been put there deliberately by preference. God actually did that on purpose. That blows my mind. God knows that left to our own devices, we just choose our own path and everyone goes their own way. And yet, it's even into these very people who have the, you know, this propensity, this self-determination that can go, you know, did you ever have, I don't, I, don't, I had cars like Hot Wheels and things like that when I was a kid. Did you ever, did you ever, you know, play with cars or wind up car and you could never get it to go straight? No matter what it did, the balance was off and it always go to the right or go, or go to the left or go to the right or whatever. Well, that, God knows that this is what we're like. And, but it's upon that weakness that he chooses to build his kingdom. There's a, there's a famous, famous revivalist preacher, teacher named D.L. Moody. You've probably heard his name. If not, you've heard of the movie, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And when D.L. Moody went to Birmingham, um, there was a great leader uh, by the name of Dr. R.W. Dale. And he went to the mission meetings where Moody was preaching and, and he went with a very critical eye because he'd heard a lot of people were really critical of Moody because of his methods and the mannerisms and the way that he did. He was doing things. He was completely outside the box. He had kind of leapfrogged the modern methods and gone into a whole new way of, of doing ministry. And a lot of people were, were skeptical, including uh, Dr. Dale. And so, but eventually he went to, to, to Moody and he says to him, Moody, I've seen this mission of yours. And I've come to the, the conclusion that it truly is of God, and I'm going to tell you why. It is because I can see no possible relation between you personally and the results your mission is achieving. Therefore, it must be God. And Moody wasn't the least bit offended by this, but said, thank God. Thank you, Lord. It's very, isn't that a pretty frank thing to say, but very true? It, isn't it? I don't know how this is going to hit your heart. But isn't it an amazing thing to know that God can and will use us not merely in spite of our disqualifications, but precisely because we have them? I want you to think about that. I want you to think right now about the, the most significant reason that you in a objective room, when you write out what are the reasons you're disqualified for ministry, and you write them out, whatever you might put at the top of the list is precisely the reason God would choose to pour this treasure in you. Does that matter to you? I'll tell you, I'm going to give you some reasons why that matters and how this, how this, how this works out. It does matter. And, 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 and one, one, I mean, it matters because God can use us best when we stop aiming at prosperity and prestige. Like if I could, if I, if, if I can get my, if I get it right, God pours in me and then people will know what I'm doing. And we can stop being infected by the world's idea of greatness and success and achievement and we can stop wanting to be strong as the world counts strength. And we can realize that actually God uses us best when by this great act of faith we, we offer him precisely our disqualification, our weakness, our obstacles, our, our utter helplessness. And we say, Lord, help the boy. Take this earthen vessel. 
and, and let the world see that all that hyperbolic dynamite is of you and not of me. I want, I want people to say of me what, they, what Dr. Dale said of Moody. <laughs> Jeff, the reason I believe that God is moving in your life is because I can see nothing of you that would make that true, but I see the results. I tell you, the more I think of this, and the more I've prayed on this this week, the more it thrills me. <clears throat> the, the, we are so prone, aren't we? When I say something like that, you're supposed to say, yeah. We are so prone, aren't we? To say to ourselves really dejectedly, well, God can't use me. That much is obvious. I'm not smart enough. I'm definitely not spiritual enough. And there are days when my, my heart is so, my heart is as cold as a stone and dead. And Lord, get somebody else. That would certainly be a better idea than using me. And so what we do is we settle down into this posture of doing nothing and throw our hands into the air in futility and say, you know, if only I could get myself squared away a little bit, then God could use me. But if this word of the Lord right there is true, then we should never have to say that. We should never say that. I mean, don't you see it? What you feel to be your weakness can be, for God's purpose, your strength. (laughs) Certainly, you got to know this that it is only that truth right there that makes Christian ministry like what I do possible. You think that, that me or the next guy up here or anybody who would dare to stand in any pulpit anywhere and try to speak about the meaning of the world and life and death and eternity would ever dare to do that if it wasn't for this thing? Namely, that God has promised to make himself known through most broken and stumbling words you know, I used to pray kind of religiously, um, Lord, let my words fall to the ground, be swept away like dust, removed from memory forever, and let yours, you know, pierce hearts and change lives. Because I realize all the stuff that comes out of me, it's just the broken and stumbling words. And it doesn't just apply to those of us who are in ministry. It applies equally across the whole range of Christian life. It's precisely out of your felt weaknesses and your self-distrust and your failings, and your feelings, who am I to bear, you know, the the name of Jesus before people? It's exactly the weakness you felt when Brian held this card up and said, you know, God can put it, we'll put it on your heart who to give this to, and you're like, oh, good Lord. I'm actually going to let somebody know? I mean, I want to see, oh, I don't want to see afterwards, it's complete sarcasm, but I'm like, I, I think sometimes the way we go about Christianity in America is we're basically all CIA agent Christians. That God has assigned us this deeply secret profile that God forbid anybody ever actually find out we're Christians. We are, but we actually, you know, we keep a secret car in the garage and we drive it to church on Sundays in disguise and then we go to church and then we go back to our normal life where we're undercover. You know, um, Who am I to bear the name of Christ before men? The answer to that is you're a broken earthen vessel into whom God is willing and able and desires to pour hyperbolic dynamite. And it's precisely that question that, you know, who am I? It's into that void of that question that God pours this creative grace and gives it to us to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to him and not us. And, and, and let me repeat, this ought to thrill you. 
Can you see it? If it's true, if, 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 it, if this is true, then the church that believes this truth is, it can be irresistible anywhere. Because it can say to people, oh, yeah, you bring your brokenness. God loves, yeah, we need, it. we need some more vessels to pour God's all-surpassing power into. And what about the individual Christian who understands that that individual Christian becomes undefeatable? You can't beat a person. You cannot defeat a person who takes their very weakness and, it, and, it, and, and, and offers it to God as God's weapon. You can't beat that person. There's no answer to that strategy. It's invincible. It's Christ on the cross, and the enemy says, I got you now. And he says, actually, my brokenness right here on the cross is the very thing God's going to pour his power out through. You're defeating death through, through death on the cross. It's, it's, it's invincible. Think about this. The Corinthian church that Paul spoke this to, they should have, humanly speaking, been in a chronic state of despair and depression. They, they were called the scum of the earth. That's, this is who, that's how they were known. And, and yet, just because of that, these words ring with triumph to them, and they say, to God be the glory. And so, if one day I'm feeling at the end of my rope, disappointed and defeated, and I feel terribly unlike the Jesus who has called me to be his witness, then that very experience of feeling that and of emptying myself actually gives God the, the place he needs to fill me. It lays me wide open to the resources which in my weakest hours I could never have developed on my own or in my strongest hours I could never have developed on my own. In fact, it's when I've sunken down into the, the, the absolute bottom of the, the pit and hit rock bottom that I, that I strike that foundation the rock of ages and then people it's it's when here here's the beauty of it it's when i've sunken down to that that spot and god has poured himself into me that people begin to take notice of me and note that i have been with jesus <laughs> brian come on up I'm done again you you make the connection between the bad news and the good news the bad news to me is that you can fill yourself with a postmodern confidence that says, I've got it figured out for myself in a way that I'm choosing my own path and have no power for life. And you can come to a place, on the other hand, of recognizing that you're really not much. In and of yourself, you, you, you really aren't enough. And into this broken earthen vessel that's called you or me, God desires and, and does pour this hyperbolic dynamite, willingly. So what do you, what do you say to, to such a thing like that? Well, I say it, it, it doesn't matter how poor and unworthy you feel you are, number one. You, I, I hear this all the time. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, here's what I'm telling you. It does not matter how poor and unworthy you feel you are. It matters. I care about your feelings, but in terms of you actually being used by God to do something significant for his kingdom, it does not matter how poor and unworthy you feel you are. It's of no bearing. It actually is to your benefit. You go, oh, wow, you're, you're, the, you're the weakest amongst us. You're really lousy. You're perfect. It doesn't matter how nasty and how dreadfully earthen the vessel is. It doesn't matter. I, I, I don't know all your stories. Some of you have really nice stories of growing up in Christian homes, and then some of y'all, like me, 
I grew up in a Christian home, but not, there's not many people here that actually know much about my life in terms of the, the things that I was really involved in. I can tell you it's a pretty nasty vessel <laughs> that God had to use. But it doesn't matter how nasty or, 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 or how, how dreadfully earthen the vessel is as long as you have the treasure in it. And so this is the question I leave you with, and I ask of my own soul too, do you have it? Do you have this treasure that is the all-surpassing power, the hyperbolic dynamite of the Spirit of God poured out into your leaky, broken earthen vessel? And if not, will you ask for it? Will you ask for it? How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This thing that we call our faith, our life in God, some sort of vague, you know, abstraction we call the Christian life, or is it really something that's that's founded on living treasure? I'm going to get down here at the altar, and I'm going to invite you to come, and and I'm going to specifically invite you. to come and exchange the bad news for good. I'm going to come and invite you to trade in your mush God for a living God who is sovereign. I'm going to invite you to to lay down your own claim to kingship and to bow your knees at at the feet of the one who holds all history in his hands. The one who is at the right hand of God to intercede on your behalf and who judges the living and the dead. Paul says to some Greek dudes in Athens that one of the reasons that God raised Jesus from the dead was to, to offer him as proof of his, that he will judge all the nations. Hey, buddy. How are you? Come on in. Come on. Come on. Come on, man. Anybody know who that is? Huh? Oh, invite him in. Maybe he needs to know the Lord. Um, And so I'm going to invite you to come with me. And him, maybe, if he comes. And let's meet Jesus together. And let's ask him to pour this earthen treasure, or this heavenly treasure into earthen vessels. So Brian's going to sing. I'm going to ask you to stand. Step one is stand. Step two is move.